Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Do Aviation Podcast, where we don't just talk aviation, we do aviation. <laughs> That's a super lame tagline I just came up with, but uh, you know, part of me kind of likes it. I don't know, we'll see if it sticks around. Anyways, I'm your host, Dio, an air traffic controller and aviation enthusiast who uh, just wants to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune in. You had hundreds of thousands of options for your podcast, and you chose us. <laughs> I say us, it's just a one-man show. But thank you, uh, seriously, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking about Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin, a man who fell 47,000 feet through a thunderstorm. So let's just get into it. In the summer of 1959, a pair of F-8 Crusader combat jets were on a routine flight over North Carolina. The late afternoon sunlight glinted from the silver and orange fuselages as the Marine Corps pilots flew high above the Carolina coast at near the speed of sound. The lead jet was piloted by 39-year-old Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin, a veteran of both World War II and the Korean War. In another crusader followed his wingman, Lieutenant Herbert Nolan. The pilots were cruising at 47,000 feet to stay above a large column of cumulonimbus clouds which were amassing about a half mile below them. Mere minutes before they were scheduled to begin their descent, William Rankin heard a series of grinding sounds coming from his aircraft's engine. The airframe shuddered, and most of the indicator needles on his array of cockpit instruments flopped over into their something-is-horribly-wrong regions. The engine had stopped cold. As the unpowered aircraft dipped earthward, Lieutenant Colonel Rankin switched on his Crusader's emergency generator to electrify his radio. Power failure, Rankin transmitted to Nolan, may have to eject. Unable to restart his engine and struggling to keep his plane from entering a near-supersonic nosedive, Rankin grasped the two emergency eject handles. He was mindful of his extreme altitude and of the serious discomfort that would accompany the sudden decompression of an ejection, but although he lacked a pressure suit, he knew that his oxygen mask would keep him breathing in the thin atmosphere nine miles up. He was also wary of the gray soup of a storm that lurked below, but having previously experienced a bailout amidst enemy fire in Korea, a bit of inclement weather didn't seem all that off-putting. At approximately 6 o'clock p.m., Lieutenant Colonel Rankin concluded that his aircraft was unrecoverable and pulled hard on his eject handles. An explosive charge propelled him from the cockpit into the atmosphere with sufficient force to rip his left glove from his hand. His canopy shattered, and the warbird started to return unmanned back to Earth. Bill Rankin had spent a fair amount of time skydiving in his career, both premeditated and otherwise. But this particular dive would be unlike that he or any other living person had experienced before. Rankin was now free-falling from 40,000 feet. The air was negative 65 degrees Fahrenheit, and the effect of the high altitude led to severe decompression. As Rankin plunged toward the earth, flashes of lightning darted through the massive storm cloud below him. The extreme cold in the upper atmosphere chilled his extremities, and the sudden change in air pressure had caused a vigorous nosebleed and an agonizing swelling in his abdomen. In a Time Magazine interview from August 1959, Rankin described the ordeal saying, I had a terrible feeling like my abdomen was bloated twice its size. My nose seemed to explode. For 30 seconds, I thought the decompression had me. It was a shocking cold all over. My ankles and wrists began to burn as though somebody had put dry ice on my skin. My left hand went numb. I had lost that glove when I went out. As the wind roared in his ears, he gasped for oxygen from his emergency breathing apparatus while resisting the urge to pull his parachute's ripcord. Its built-in barometer was designed to auto-deploy the parachute at a safe breathing altitude, and his supply of emergency oxygen was limited. Opening the chute early would prolong his descent and might result in death due to asphyxiation or hypothermia. Under normal circumstances, you would expect about three and a half minutes of freefall to reach the breathable altitude of 10,000 feet. These circumstances, however, were not normal. 
After falling for a mere 10 seconds, Bill Rankin penetrated the top of the anvil-shaped storm. The dense gray clouds smothered out the summer sun, and the temperature dropped rapidly. In less than a minute, the extreme cold and wind began to inflict Rankin's extremities with frostbite, particularly his gloveless left hand. He was bleeding from his eyes, ears, nose, and mouth from the decompression. The wind was deafening inside his flight helmet. Freezing, injured, and unable to see more than a few feet in the murky cloud, the lieutenant colonel mustered all of his will to keep his hand from pulling the ripcord. After falling through the damp darkness for what felt like far too long, Rankin began to grow concerned that the automatic switch on his parachute had malfunctioned. He felt certain that he had been descending for several minutes, though he was aware that one sense of time is not always reliable when under duress. He held the ripcord anxiously, wondering whether to give it a pull. He'd lost all feeling in his left hand, and his other limbs weren't faring much better. It was then that he felt a sharp and familiar upward tug on his harness. His parachute had deployed. It was too dark to see the chute's canopy above him, but he tugged on the risers and concluded that it had indeed inflated properly. This was a welcome change from the wet and windy freefall. Unfortunately for the impaired pilot, he was nowhere near the 10,000-foot altitude he expected. Strong updrafts in the storm cell had decreased his terminal velocity substantially, and the volatile storm had triggered his barometric parachute switch prematurely. Bill Rankin was still far from the earth, and he was now dangling helplessly in the belly of the storm. The muscular 39-year-old fighter pilot and weightlifter was tossed about like a rag doll as lightning cracked and snapped around him. I'd see the lightning, Rankin would let her recall. Boy, do I remember that lightning. I never exactly heard the thunder. I felt it. Amidst the electrical spectacle, the storm's winds pressed Rankin downward until he encountered the powerful updrafts, the same updrafts that kept hailstones aloft as they accumulate ice, which dragged him and his chute thousands of feet back up into the storm. This dangerous effect is familiar to paragliding enthusiasts who unaffectionately refer to it as cloud suck. At the apex, Rankin caught up with his parachute, causing it to drape over him like a wet blanket and stir worries that he would become entangled with it and drop from the sky at a truly terminal velocity. Again he fell, and again the updrafts yanked him skyward in the darkness. He lost count of how many times this up-down cycle repeated. At one point, I got seasick and heaved, he once were told. At times, the air was so saturated with suspended water that an intake of breath caused him to sputter and choke. He began to worry about the very strange but very real possibility of drowning in the sky. He began to feel his body being peppered by hailstones that were forming around him, adding yet another concern, that the icy shrapnel might shred his fragile silk canopy. Lieutenant Colonel Rankin was uncertain how long he had been absorbing the abuse when he began to notice that the level of violence in his beating was declining. He was also beginning to regain some sensation in his numb limbs, indicating that temperatures were warming. And the rain, which had previously been splashing him from every conceivable direction, was now only falling from above. Moments later, the marine emerged from the underside of the cumulonimbus cloud amidst a warm summer rain. Below was a flat expanse of North Carolina backcountry, with no immediate signs of civilization in sight. But Rankin's parachute was still functional, and he was just a few hundred feet from the ground, so all seemed relatively well. But the storm had one last parting gift. As Rankin neared the ground, a sudden gust of wind tossed him into a thicket. Helpless, he was pushed into the branches of a tree where his parachute became ensnared, and his momentum caused him to plow headfirst into the trunk. Fortunately, his flight helmet prevented his brain from taking any serious damage. Bill Rankin removed himself from the troublesome tree and assessed his situation. The time was 6.40 p.m. Bill's brutalized body had spent about 40 minutes 
being bobbed around the area of atmosphere which mountaineers refer to unfondly as the death zone. Applying his marine training, Rankin started walking in a search pattern until he located a back road. He stood at the roadside and attempted to flag down the automobiles that occasionally passed, but it took some time to find a passerby bold enough to break for a soggy, bleeding, bruised, frostbitten, and vomit-covered pilot. Fortunately, an obliging stranger stopped and drove Rankin back to a country store in a nearby town where he used the phone to summon an ambulance. While he awaited its arrival, he took the luxury of collapsing to the floor for some much-needed rest. In the aftermath of his ordeal, Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin spent several weeks recovering in the hospital. His injuries were surprisingly minor, consisting of superficial frostbite and a touch of decompression shock. He eventually returned to duty, and the following year he chronicled his perilous adventures in a now-out-of-print book entitled The Man Who Rode the Thunder. Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin passed away on July 6, 2009, almost exactly 50 years after his harrowing and history-making ride on the storm. He was the first person to have parachuted through a cumulonimbus tower and lived to tell about it. As I was researching Rankin's story, I discovered that only one other person has done it since. On February 14, 2007, in spite of weather reports warning about the presence of violent thunderstorms, paraglider, and I apologize for my pronunciation of her name, Ewa Wisniewska, decided to try to fly in order to train for the 2007 Paragliding World Championship. She was sucked into the ascending current of a cumulonimbus cloud which harbored hail and extremely low temperatures inside. Unlike with Rankin, Awa had a GPS device on her which recorded a lot of data about her ordeal. The GPS shows that she was lifted to an altitude of over 32,600 feet. For reference, Mount Everest is only about 29,000 feet tall. She would have cleared the top of Everest by over 3,000 feet. The GPS barometer also tracked vertical speeds of up to 20 meters per second. That's about 48 miles per hour in updraft that she felt. She landed three and a half hours later, almost 40 miles north of her starting position. In the same weather event, 42-year-old Chinese paraglider He Zongpin was killed by a lightning strike, just showing how miraculous it was that Rankin and Awa survived. She encountered all of the same conditions Rankin did, of lightning, pounding hail, minus 40 degree temperatures, oxygen deprivation, and decompression. She actually blacked out during this nightmare for almost an hour while being tossed around, but her doctor told her that blacking out had actually saved her. Being unconscious, her brain slowed down all of her bodily functions, increasing her odds of survival. These stories were just incredible to me, and as soon as I learned about them, I knew I had to talk about them. This is a pretty short episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. If you did like it, someone you know probably would like it too, so be sure to share it with a friend. This podcast is still brand new, so any form of support is greatly appreciated. Sharing it and giving it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is the best way to do that. And be sure to follow the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Uh, of course, uh, it's obligatory to promote the Instagram and the TikTok accounts. Both of them are at DoAviation. That's at D-O-Aviation. Thanks again so much for listening. Wishing you clear skies and tailwinds. Until next time, g'day. The views and opinions expressed on the Do Aviation podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Department of Transportation, the Federal Aviation Administration, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, or any other entity outside of the individuals on the show. Unless otherwise stated, the Do Aviation podcast is in no way associated with or done in collaboration with the DOT, FAA, or NACA. This program is not official guidance and does not replace the teachings of a certified trainer or instructor. Any and all episodes are the property of the uploader and shall not be recorded or transcribed without express written permission. This program was recorded on 
on personal time with personal property, and no government resources are used in this show. Any recordings used are from third-party sources. The intent of the Do Aviation podcast is to advocate for aviation safety, discuss aviation, and promote aviation as a whole, but makes no guarantees to the accuracy of anything said on the show or any legal obligations. Federal aviation regulations should be followed at all times, and listeners are encouraged to use good judgment and practice safety in all situations. Your local Flight Standards District office or a certified flight instructor should be referred to for any questions regarding aviation laws, rules, or regulations.